While you're being seated, you might go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. So are you there yet? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, looking at verse 20, beginning. And you might want to go ahead, if you have your uh, ribbon in your Bible, to put that ribbon in Ephesians chapter 1 as well. We uh, are, I I really had a hard time this week, uh, both of these texts summarize very well the doctrines that we are going to be teaching this morning. And I had uh, trouble deciding which one I was going to do, so I just decided to do both of them. So uh, we're going to be looking, comparing, and, and looking at both of them this morning. So 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22 is what we're going to read. And um, you go ahead and follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read this morning. For the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Two weeks ago, we were actually supposed to look at this last week, but as you know, Brother Art filled in for me last week uh, to kind of give me a chance to rest my back from its injury. And so, um, but the week before that, we were looking at the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how he works in our lives. And we started off by looking at his initial works in salvation. You may remember that. Uh, A few of the doctrines that we talked about was his calling of us. We looked at regeneration, that we are born again. And we looked at his indwelling of us, that the Holy Spirit indwells us. And that is the primary promise of the new covenant, that uh, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And we saw that initially with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we didn't get a chance to talk about that a whole lot. We're going to be mentioning it here in about another week or so. But then we also saw the continual indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so this week, we're going to be looking at, that's kind of a good segue into looking beyond the initial works of the Holy Spirit within us. And we're going to be looking at the continuing works of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to know that what I'm giving you here is really just a framework. Um, There's a lot more that we could talk about. A lot more than I'm going to have time to talk about. But, but what I want you to have is a basic framework for understanding how the Spirit works both in our lives and our families' lives, and then also how He works in our church. And, and that's um, really what we're going to be looking at next week when we start to look at God's uh, work through us. And so, but for now, we are looking at this work in the life of the Christian that can really be summarized with one word, sanctification. Sanctification. All of the ministries of the Holy Spirit that are continuing in our lives can be summarized under that one umbrella term, sanctification. That's a $3 word that uh, maybe you were taught in uh, uh, Sunday school that means basically to be set apart. Now, uh, I will be honest with you, I don't think that that is the best definition of sanctification. I think there's a better definition that says that we are devoted to God. 
We are devoted to God. And here's why I believe that. Because you can be set apart from sin as far as the sins that you know, but yet still not really be devoted to God. Uh, Men, in our marriages, we can be set apart from every woman on the earth, right? And yet still not really be devoted to our wives either. And so, and unfortunately, that happens a lot. And so, and of course, vice versa is also true. And so devotion to God, being devoted to God for his purposes, that is the better way, I think, to understand sanctification. It's not about what we don't do, although that is certainly included, but it is about our pursuit of Christ. And there are different aspects of sanctification. We are declared holy based on the holiness of Christ himself, That is really a positional sanctification. Uh, When I was in high school, I had a friend who was a devout Catholic, and she asked me one time, does your church have saints? And I said, well, I don't think so. And so, uh, so I went back to my pastor, and I said, do we have saints? And he said, nope. (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, but, but then he turned around and he explained to me that fact of the matter is, is that we are all saints of God because we are in the position of being holy in Christ. So that is, that is we are declared holy. That, that is related to justification. But on the other hand, we will also be made perfectly holy in our eternal state. That is, um, that is the ending of our sanctification, a doctrine better known as glorification. God does all of those works. He does not, we don't have a, a lot to do with those. Those are all the work of God. But what we are concerned with here is practical sanctification. And that doctrine is unique. Because unlike the other two, we participate in this part. We actually have something to do here. We are actively involved. We cannot be passive in our practical sanctification, our process of holiness. Uh, We... We are going to be talking about this a lot more, but, but there's two aspects of it, and we're only going to talk about the Spirit's role in our sanctification this morning. Now, there are things that we do to be sanctified, and we will be talking about that soon. But for this morning, we are only interested in God's side of it. That is how the Spirit sanctifies us. Beloved, we do not make ourselves holy. Even though there is practical work involved, even though there is things we must do, even though we are not passive in sanctification, at the end of the day, we do not make ourselves holy. And this is really the danger of any doctrine, but but especially when you're talking about the Holy Spirit, there is an especially acute danger here, and that is this, is that we define our theology experientially. In other words, we allow our experiences to define and determine what we believe. Now, do your experiences play a part? Of course they do. Of course they do. But we don't want to define our doctrine by our experiences. But on the other hand, we want to interpret our experiences theologically. 
That's what we want to do. We want to interpret the Word of God, not based on our experience, but we want to take our experience and make it bow the knee to the Word of God. And we want to interpret our lives on the basis of the Word. And when it comes to studying the Holy Spirit, this is especially dangerous because there is, un, there is undeniably a subjective part in this and that your experience of the Holy Spirit is going to be a little different than mine. And yet we want to define all of that theologically and not take our experiences and let that define our doctrine. We get into trouble and a lot of churches have if we do that. And so let's look at this this morning. We must depend on the Holy Spirit to work in us. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning in these doctrines. That we must understand that we do not make ourselves holy, but we must depend on the work of the Spirit within us that continues throughout our lives. And again, as I said, both of these texts are gratefully, are, are gratefully summarizing the doctrine that we're going to look at to especially frame uh, this conclusion. Number one, we're going to see that the Spirit illumines us with his professing presence. The Spirit illumines us. Look at, uh, look at chapter one, verse 21. He says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. Now, that word establishes, it means to strengthen or confirm or to make us strong. In other words, it is a way of describing what it is that the Spirit does. He is illumining our life. Now, what does the word illumination mean? It means to turn on the light. That's all there is to it. Turn on the light. I don't know why we have to put all these big words to things. I think it's so we can sound smart when we graduate. But, uh, but illumination simply means to turn on the light. In fact, it's taken from Hebrews 10, 32, that says, once you have been enlightened. And so it's to be enlightened. It's to turn on the light. The Spirit of God enlightens us. And what is involved with that? I want you to know, number one, the first and most basic aspect of illumination is that the Spirit of God teaches us. He teaches us. Um, look just a few pages back to 1 Corinthians 2, 13. And you may want to keep your thumb there, but 1 Corinthians 2, 13, here's what it says. Paul is saying, we impart these, this in words, notice this, not taught by human wisdom. In other words, we do not come to church on Sunday morning to hear the wisdom of man. We do not come to church on Sunday morning to have our ears tickled by things that are just going to stoke our ego and things that are going to make us more dependent on our flesh and make us smarter sinners. That's not why we do this. We come to church not to be imparted with words taught by human wisdom, but to be taught by the Spirit to be taught by the Spirit of God. This is what Jesus promised the Spirit would do when he told the disciples he would take what is Christ, what belongs to Christ, and he would give it to us. We begin to comprehend Christ. We begin to understand the significance of who he is and what he has accomplished. We begin to see Christ. 
In fact, uh, 2 Corinthians, just look a couple pages over for 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, for it is God, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. By the way, what's that a reference to? Genesis chapter 1, 1, right? Or 1, 3, whatever it is. Let there be light, right? 1, 3. Genesis 1, 3. It is. Take my word for it. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, what else has he done? He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beloved, it is God who turns on the lights in our heart. Look what Paul goes on to say in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13. And I think I put the rest of the verse there up on the board uh, for them, Mark. He goes on to say that we teach, we instruct spiritual people, not taught, by, not taught by the Spirit, but instead we give spiritual teaching to spiritual people, is how he words that. Interpreting spiritual things with those who are in spiritual. In other words, those who are in natural, those who are in the flesh, they cannot accept the truths of God. In fact, the verse goes on to say that they are not able to understand those things. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't understand it intellectually. We know they can. Unbelievers can know a lot of true things about God, but it does mean that they cannot receive them. They cannot accept them. Why? Because the Spirit teaches us and he also convinces us. He convinces us. The Spirit does not only teach us what the truths of God's are, but he confirms them in our hearts. He bears witness to the fact that the Scriptures are true. That's why I really encourage you, this small group that Brother Stephan is wanting to do that, that is all about worldview and how to respond biblically to the world. Uh, I really encourage you to take part in that because the Spirit is wanting to teach you and, and help you understand and confirm the truth of God in your heart so that you will know how to live in a world that is being tossed by the waves so that you will know how to respond and you will know that the scriptures are true. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter two, once again, in that 15th verse, he says here that the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one because these things are spiritually discerned. And so what does this look like in the real world? When the spirit turns on the light, and we begin to understand what does that look like? And for that, I want you to look at where your ribbon is in Ephesians chapter one. And look what he says. He says in verse 13, he says, in him, that is Christ, in Christ, you also, watch this, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, understand that when the Spirit is teaching you and confirming in your heart, first of all, you hear that word and you hear it in a way that you begin to comprehend it. You begin to understand it. You begin to understand the significance of it. And then look what Paul goes on to say there. He says, when you heard the word of truth, your salvation, and believed in him. Again, the Spirit is confirming these things. He's convincing you in your heart. It convinced you, it drew you, it caused you to respond. Remember Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, 
Who do all the people say that I am? Some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Others say a prophet. Jesus says, well, that's all well and good, but who do you say that I am? And what did, Jesus, what did Peter say? You are the Christ, the son of God. And notice how Jesus responds. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. The spirit illumined him. He taught him the truth and he convinced him that it was true. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse three says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit illumines us, he teaches us, and he convinces us that the words are true. And then he compels you. He teaches you, he convinces you, and he compels you. You don't just hear the word and are convinced, but you are compelled to respond. You see the beauty of it. You see the loveliness of it. You see the the wonderfulness of it. And you're compelled. You cannot just leave it in its place. But you have to respond. One of the best summaries of illumination I've ever heard was by Jim Berg in the book, Changed in His Image. He says this, that we are moved intellectually We say, this is right. I must believe it. We're moved emotionally. We say, this is wonderful. I must praise it. And we are moved volitionally. This is compelling. I must do it. And when you have a person like that, you have a person who's been illumined by the Holy Spirit. You have a person who has been taught of the Spirit. God moves in our hearts to know him so that we may be like him to the glory of him. Remember, what do we always say? He who gives the grace, what? Gets the glory. I think that's gonna be my catchphrase for the rest of my life. He who gives the grace gets the glory. God gives us the grace to know him. Therefore, he gets all the glory of our salvation. Amen? Amen. Amen. He illumines us. But number two, the Spirit also anoints us with his empowering presence. He illumines us with his professing presence. Had to use a P word there. And he, he anoints us with his empowering presence presence. And what do we mean by that? Look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. He says that it is God who establishes you in Christ with you and has anointed us and has anointed us. Now, we need to be a little discerning here because the anointing of the Holy Spirit is something that is highly abused today not only in charismatic circles, especially in charismatic circles, but, but you will even see this in Baptist circles where the charismatic movement has kind of made an infiltration in due to charismatic influence. The anointing today is used to refer to all kinds of things that people do supposedly in the name of the Holy Spirit. People who claim to have the anointing will fall down or they will push you down. 
And they will do some pretty obscene things. In fact, stuff that quite frankly, I would not repeat behind this sacred desk. They will do it in the name of the Holy Spirit under the, under the idea of anointing. One practice is for a person to take the stage and throw imaginary fireballs of anointing at each other. You can see that on YouTube, TBN. Maybe you've seen uh, Rodney Howard Brown, the self-appointed Holy Spirit bartender who likes to get up on stage and yell, fire! And people fall down, supposedly, in the name of God. One preacher um, I saw encouraged people to inject themselves with pretend needles and get high on Jesus. Needles, syringes of anointing. And another one encourages people to smoke baby Jesus and get high on Jehovah Wana. They'll talk about getting drunk in the spirit, drunken glory, laughing in the spirit, Holy Spirit bartender, all of these things. And by the way, these are the people who will look at me, look at us, look at Calvary Baptist Church, people who have a little more sense than this, people who are Baptistic, people who are Reformed in our faith, and they will say that we are the ones who deny the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, contraire. Just the opposite. Beloved, we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I am so confident in the power of the Holy Spirit that I do not believe that anyone who is truly indwelt by the Spirit of God will teach garbage like that. No one will. I believe in the power of the Spirit. So much so that anyone who is teaching that does not have the Spirit. They are possessed by something else. And I'll take it even further. I don't believe anyone who's truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit can really tolerate that kind of teaching for very long. I'm not talking about baby Christians who are born into churches like that. I'm not talking about them. But before too long, the Spirit's gonna tell them to get out, to seek out something else. We have some in our congregation who have that very testimony. They were watching charlatans like Todd White and Benny Hinn and all of these snake oil salesmen. Beloved, if, if Ken Copeland told me the sky was blue, I would have to go out and see for myself. I don't think the man knows how to tell the truth. If Benny Hinn told me water was wet, I'd have to test that. I need to go on. So, but I do believe someone who's truly indwelt by the Spirit will not be able to tolerate that kind of teaching for very long. Someone who comes up and says, beloved, I don't like how you talk about some of these teachers. My, my favorite teacher, I've been a Christian for 50 years and I love Olstein. 50 years you've been a Christian and you can't see him for what he is? Beloved, I'm concerned about you. I'm concerned about that. So the spirit of God who is powerful enough to bring us from death to life is powerful enough to make us uncomfortable with false teachers. 
I need to go on. I can go on forever on that. So we talked about what it's not, but what is the anointing? What is that? It's really an Old Testament reference. It's, uh, it refers to pouring oil over someone's head. And, it, uh, and in the Old Testament, God set aside certain ones for responsibilities in the life of the nation of Israel. And specifically, most specifically, kings and priests. Now, occasionally, you also have prophets who are being anointed. But it is mostly for kings, and it is mostly for priests. And they had the responsibility to do what? To represent God and his rule in the nation, to enact the rule of God in the nation of the people of Israel. And the priests represented and worshipped God. And those who were anointed with oil, they were anointed for these tasks. And in the New Testament, here's what I want you to see, is that this exact language of royal priesthood is used for the church. For example, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race, watch this, a royal priesthood, a reference back to kingship, a reference back to the priesthood, those who had anointed by God. You look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, and I know there's some um, differences of interpretation here, but I want you to notice that he's talking about those who are saved. He says, over such the second death has no power. Watch this. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for 1,000 years, which I believe is symbolic of the church age. And so, but what's happening there, whether you agree with that or not, what's happening there? is that God, just as God anointed, enabled, just as his anointing enabled Old Testament leaders to enact God's rule in the nation, beloved, so now every Christian has the anointing of the Holy Spirit to bring about the rule and reign of Christ in your life. Every one of us, has the anointing. If you are saved, then you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, you have the anointing of the Spirit. And you are given the task of ruling and reigning with Christ. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we are to rule in a geopolitical sense. But it means that God has empowered you. It means that God has enabled you. He has anointed you to bring the reign of Christ into your life. He has anointed you. He has empowered you to bring the reign of Christ into your families. He has anointed you. He has empowered you to bring the reign of Christ into Calvary Baptist Church. Beloved, every single one of us who knows Christ is anointed. That's the whole function of it. Every believer is anointing. Every, every believer has the anointing. Why? In fact, look at the rest of 1 Peter 2, 9. This is the one I extended. Why, do, why are we a royal priesthood, a holy nation? Why are we these things? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the purpose of the anointing. And every Christian has it. So let's just talk about this for a minute. What's the application of that? Are you discouraged? Men, fathers, do you feel like you don't have what it takes to lead your family in Christ? Wives, are you struggling with an unbelieving husband and you don't know how you're gonna raise your kids 
as believers? Maybe not unbelieving, just uninvolved. Maybe you're struggling with sin or suffering and you feel like it's hopeless, that you will never change. Maybe you're looking at the great challenges we have as a church, as a nation, and wondering, is there any hope? Beloved, you have been anointed by God. And because of that, there is hope. God has given you everything you need for life and godliness to bring Christ and his rule and reign into your life, into your family, and into this church. He has given us everything we need. And you are anointed. There, understand, there are no special classes of Christians. There are not the haves and the have-nots. There are not the entirely sanctified and the carnal. There are not the, the baptized in the Spirit and the unbaptized in the Spirit. Beloved, we all approach the cross of Christ on the same ground. And there are not haves and have-nots. There are not clergy and laity. There are not all of these things. There are a bunch of people who are hurting people, who are not perfect people, who are helping one another in a covenant community, who all have the anointing of God to enable us to do so. That's what we are. We are a church. And every single one of us, I may be standing two or three feet above you just so you can see me. I don't know why in the world you'd want to. But just so you can see me, I'm raised above you. But beloved, understand, I am in no way above you in Christ. I'm just a sinner in need of help, helping others in need of help. It's all any of us are. We're all messed up. We're all people who got things messed up in our lives who are here to worship our incredible God who has made it right in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. Nothing more, nothing less. What about when you fail? He empowers you to do it, but we fail so often, don't we? We try and we fail. We try and we fail. It seems like we're just spinning our wheels. What, hap what happens there? When you resist the Spirit, when you try it on your own strength instead of His, what happens? That's the third wonderful gift of the Spirit, continuing work, that He seals us with His protecting presence. He seals us. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Look in verse 22. And who has put his seal on us, and notice the parallelism, and given us the Spirit in your hearts as a guarantee. In fact, you look in Ephesians chapter one, it says the same thing. It says in uh, verse uh, 13 and 14, it says, you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It happened, now you were sealed with Christ by the Spirit at the moment of your salvation. You were sealed with the Spirit. That was an initial work, but that is also an ongoing work that he does for us, and you'll see that in a second. 
It happened at the moment, but like all of these ministries, it is ongoing. And, and I want you to understand what's being talked about here is that during this time, and, and in fact, cattle ranchers still do this, is that they will take and they will place a mark on their cattle in order to, to do a couple of things. Number one is to mark out their property that, th- that they own this particular cow or bull. It marked ownership, but it also protected them from theft. Because if a cow is ever, is ever stolen, then you can prove by your mark, you can prove by your brand that this is, in fact, your cow, right? And the Holy Spirit is God's seal over us. He marks us out as his own, and he protects us. We are guarded against the enemy of our souls who seeks to steal us away from Christ. The Holy Spirit protects us in in the sense that he marks us out as God's own and he protects us from the enemy. This ministry of the Spirit is really the answer to Jesus' prayer in, in Luke chapter 22. He tells Peter, I don't have this down. You might want to mark it down for later. 22, 32, he says, oh, Peter, how often Satan wanted to take you for himself, to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. And the Spirit's sealing is the answer to Jesus's prayer. The enemy desires to have us all, but praise be to God that the power of God's seal is over us, God the Spirit himself, and that cannot be broken. It cannot be open by anyone else. In fact, we see this in action in Revelation chapter seven, verse three. And again, I know there's some interpretational differences here. But look what he says. He tells the angels and tells those who are going out to destroy the earth. He says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. And we see that seal in action in the book of Revelation, how it protects them from the coming devastation and it marks them out as God's own. The judgment of all the earth is withheld until all the servants of God have been sealed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He himself is our protection, our guarantee. By the word, the word guarantee there, you can understand that as a down payment. It's a, it's a, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, uh, I don't know what you'd even call it, the, the down payment of the future full possession of our inheritance. First fruits, if you will. What does this mean? Beloved, it means we don't belong to ourselves. The Spirit's seal is the mark of God's ownership of us. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. First Corinthians chapter six, just a few pages over, most of us. Chapter six, verses 19 to 20, he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Beloved, if you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, then you are owned by God. This, this is actually slavery terminology of the, of the first century world. 
He has marked us out as his own. Therefore, we are not to use our bodies or any aspects of our lives to engage in sin. Our lives, our bodies, everything are for the glory of God alone. We are to use everything we have, everything God has given us to that end, to glorify God. But it also encourages us because the seal of the Holy Spirit protects us and we are preserved by God himself. What happens when we don't do something to the glory of God? What happens when we don't do something to the glory of Christ? What happens when we do something to the shame of the glory of Christ? We don't lose Christ. We are not turned over to the enemy. When we sin and feel like a, like a failure, the seal of the Holy Spirit still speaks over us and God still looks at us and says, you are mine. Second Timothy chapter one, verse seven, beloved, says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You don't have to be afraid to come back to God when you sin because the Holy Spirit is the seal of your salvation and you are sealed until the day of redemption when all of the promises are realized in Christ. Don't be afraid to pursue holiness because you think you might fail. Don't be afraid to do the right thing because you think you might fail. We've been talking about this who's your one and, and praying for one to share your faith with. Maybe some of you are nervous about that saying, I can't do that. Yes, you can because you have the anointing of the spirit. Yes, you can. You are empowered. You are protected. You say, well, well what if they hurt me? Then God's gonna protect you. You have the power to do what he tells you to do. You have the power. Holy Spirit, he illumines you. He, he, he teaches you. He compels you to do it. And then he gives you the power you need to carry it out. It's all of God. It's not about us. It is about Jesus Christ. Amen? So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to share your faith. Don't be afraid to worship in church. Don't be afraid to, don't be afraid of anything. And if you sin, God stands ready and willing and waiting to forgive you. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you. If you don't remember anything else today, remember this. The guarantee of your salvation is not based on your performance. It is not based on your ability to do it. It is based on the grace and the mercy and the power and the glory of God that has been set over your life to give you everything you need for life and godliness in this world. And maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're here this morning. You've started coming back to church recently because you've said, you know, I think I'm gonna turn over a new leaf and I'm gonna start doing better. Beloved, let me just stop you right there. You can't. You can't. 
But if you will seek out the one who is able to seal you, to teach you, and to empower you, you will find the one who can save your soul and you'll find the one who will, whose grace is sufficient for you. Jesus Christ came to the earth. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose three days later and now he has ascended to the right hand of God so that he can offer himself to you as a savior. Beloved, trust me, there is nothing you can do that'll top that. There's nothing you can do that'll add to that. There's nothing you can do that will complete that. When Christ said, it is finished, he was talking about you. That what I came, the one I came to purchase has now been purchased for me. Is God's name on your forehead this morning? Is the name of Christ sealed on your forehead? Do you have the Holy Spirit? If not, then you can come at this time. I'm gonna ask our musicians to come forward. I'm just gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just for one moment while our musicians are gonna play softly and just reflect on everything we've said today and just ask yourself, are, are you growing in, the, in your faith? Is the Holy Spirit, do you, can you see the Holy Spirit's work in your life? Do you have more love than you had a year ago? Do you have more assurance than you had a year ago? Do you have more uh, desire to say no to sin and to say yes to God than, than you did a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, whatever it is? Do you see the Holy Spirit's progress in your life? If not, maybe you might seek him today. You can do that where you are. You can do that here in the altar. You can do it wherever. But whatever it is, maybe the Lord is speaking to you today. Maybe you're here and you say, I, I don't have this salvation thing. I've been trying to do this by myself and man, I've been messing it up. I am weak. Would you come and find the one who's been strong for you, who will be strong for you and will do everything you need? He's done it all. Religion says, I must do. Christ said, it's done. He completed it all for you. Will you come and know him? I would love to talk to you, tell you how you can know Christ and you can have the spirit in your life. Our Father, we lift up this time for you. We lift up, Lord, whatever the applications are that you have in the hearts of your people. I pray that you are, you are implanting those things now as we just reflect on you for a while. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's just keep our heads bowed for just a moment. If you have a need as the musicians play softly, would you, would you come? Maybe you wanna join the church. Maybe you want to follow him in some decision. Maybe you're looking for wisdom. Maybe you're just looking for prayer. Maybe you can look at your life and you can't see the progress of the spirit in your life and you wanna talk about that. You're wondering what that means. Maybe it means you're not really saved. Maybe it means you've been focused on self. Whatever it is, we want you to come.